Hello Absurdistanis and welcome to Absurdistan, the transatlantic political podcast with news and opinion from the absurd political reality which is our home. My name is Adam. And my name is John. If you're listening to this, you're listening to a pre-recorded podcast. This will be part three of our summer series. Either John or I are away on holiday, we are both travelling over the summer, so this is a series that we've been doing over the summer looking at the problems with modern democracy and some of its solutions. In the past, in part one and part two, we've looked at representation and we looked at voting. This week, we're going to be looking at constitutions. Constitutions can be good things, they can be bad things. Some states have constitutions. In fact, most states do have constitutions and some states don't, like the United Kingdom. So we're going to be looking at some of the problems that constitutions can cause, but we're also going to be looking at some of the solutions, if there are any at all, perhaps taking some examples from countries in which... uh, their constitution seem to work quite well. So, John, where are we going to start this week? Well, doing the research for this episode, I thought it was just so interesting, the varied types and sizes of constitutions around the world. It's certainly true that there's no one-size-fits-all. For instance, here in the United States, we have a fairly short, almost to a fault, vague constitution. Um, it's only about 15 pages, and it's only had 27 amendments or so since it was ratified in 1789. But, for instance, states like India, their constitution is hundreds of pages long. It's 145,000 words, and it basically regulates down to the nitpicking detail everything in government and leaves nothing uh, to be questioned whatsoever. Um, And then you have countries like the UK, and I believe uh, New Zealand as well, and maybe Canada don't have codified constitutions either. Yeah, so the UK definitely doesn't. Uh, The UK, you could say it's only constitution is uh, kind of a single belief that parliament is sovereign. Um, It is governed by conventions and precedent, but ultimately parliament is sovereign. It can can do what it wants. Uh, Canada doesn't have a constitution as such. The the Canadian constitution is kind of set in a variety of different laws and charters. It it exists, just not in one place. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure about New Zealand, though. That, and that's similar to the UK where you have various legal precedents going back to like the Magna Carta, for instance, that um, govern or or at least inform the rules and the laws that are put into place by the government. Just long-standing legal principles that have been developed in Western society over time, which is interesting because that carries over into the United States. A lot of times English common law is referred to in our court system when we're, when we're parsing through the Constitution of the United States and, and the laws that are developed in the United States, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of legal principles that were set forth hundreds of years ago are still being used um, in United States courts. And you could argue that um, the United States Constitution itself is based in longstanding legal principles that existed before the states. Well, that's one of the things I've actually learned quite recently. I've um, been listening to some history podcasts, and one of the more recent ones I've gone through is the English Civil War. And it's amazing to see, actually, a hundred years before the founding of the United States, just how much the concept of civil liberties, representation in a parliamentary body, uh, opposed to the king, particularly during the English Civil War. Even the philosophy that the US Constitution is based on already existed a good hundred years before uh, the the United States, that it just took the century for it to be actually implemented into a practical, purposeful state. It's interesting that you mentioned the English Civil War because in the middle of that war, John Locke was born and he wrote his two treatises on government. And then you had also um, John Stuart Mill who wrote On Liberty. 
And those sort of enlightenment ideas of government had a profound effect on the Declaration of Independence. If you read the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution, it's it's almost as if the, the writers, um, Thomas Jefferson, actually just basically cribbed everything that he – all of his ideas from John Locke. I mean even uh, – John Locke was, um, I believe, one of the first political philosophers who came up with the very concept of separation of powers, which is the backbone of the United States Constitution, Articles 1, 2, and 3 – the, lo- the longest articles in the Constitution govern the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch, all separating the powers and and um, describing the relationships between those three and how they're supposed to operate. So a lot of times – and you were educated in the United States system. A lot of times the American history uh, paints these ideas as completely revolutionary that were put forth by the founding fathers when really these these ideas had been percolating since the Enlightenment for the last, you know, 150, 200 years prior to the United States becoming um, a country. There were even a group during the English Civil War called the Levelers who came up with the crazy notion of uh, equal rights for all men, regardless of whether they were property holders or... Uh, you know, wealthy. It was it was quite revolutionary at the time. In fact, there were even a group called the Diggers who were almost the early social democrats. Like two hundred odd years before, you know, the the roots of social democracy would actually start taking root. Uh, they were already all the way back in the sixteen hundreds. But it, it does kind of go to show you is that no man is an island, and the beginning of any uh, political revolution uh, is never seeded from kind of itself. It always comes from somewhere else. There's always a background. There's always a context. There's always hundreds of years of philosophy that have filtered into the creation of these ideas. The one thing I will give the United States, though, was that it was the first to implement uh, Republican democracy. Uh, that had never been done before when, you know, all of Europe were still under the um, despotic monarchy system, other than uh, the United Kingdom at the time, believe it or not. Uh, there was a... The United States were the first to make property-owning white men above the age of 21 or 25 uh, equal citizens under the law. That's right. And the Constitution was certainly a product of its time, so it wasn't perfect at at, at this outset, obviously, um, where you cut, you like we, we spoke about last episode where you had that concept of some people being more equal than others. Mm-hmm. Um, that was definitely the case in, in uh, at the beginning because women and and slaves weren't allowed to vote, and they and even slaves only counted as three fifths of a person in the original um, constitution. The irony of a group of freedom fighters fighting the tyranny and despotism of a monarch, and then still having slavery. The inclusion of a lot of that in the constitution was really a compromise to have slaveholding states actually remain in the union. It was more of a, uh, again, like I said, it's, it was a product of its time. It was seen as a way to maintain stability of the new union that was formed and not have fracturing between the states. Um, not to say that it wasn't horrible, and, and I'm glad that it was changed. Um, it just took a little bit, a long, far too long of a time for it to actually change. But you're right. The concepts of liberalism that were used in the American Constitution were long in development prior to it. To it, one of the things too that the United States Constitution did that was quite different than anything that had been done in the past was it specifically set out a separation of of not only powers but also church and state. So it was a 
it was one of the first secular constitutions, or maybe the first secular constitution in, in the world. It could even have been one of the first constitutions in the world? I'm pretty sure the United States was the first country to have a complete written national constitution. And, and something that was really interesting that almost no government had done prior to this was the fact that it, it set up a specifically secular state, uh, which was a new development because basically every state, especially the monarchies, had state church, state churches um, mm. that had significant power in in the formation of policy. And that was one of the things that uh, angered the the founders of the United States, and they wanted to make sure that didn't happen. Yeah, although I'm pretty sure you'll find people that would disagree with you on exactly what the Constitution says about the separation of church and state. The only time that the church or religion is mentioned in the Constitution is that uh, Congress is going to make no law respecting the establishment of it. You can debate as to what... And that's one of the problems I wanted to get into with the American Constitution is that the vagueness of its terms leads to perennial arguments over what was actually meant, which is why I get so fed up with with the idea of original intent because it's almost impossible to understand what the original intent of the constitution was i mean you, you could be right in that the founding fathers you know would have been incensed by the idea of a national church but i'm not sure they would have been particularly aware and maybe this speaks to the failure and the adaptability of the constitution to account for the variety of uh religious plurality that would eventually come to exist in the states in other words i cannot understand the argument of those that don't want too much separation between the church and state as being well the founding fathers would have conceived of only a christian or at least a judeo-christian state going forward like there wouldn't have been humanism uh mormonism islam atheism. I don't think that would have necessarily been in their conception at the time. Maybe I'm wrong. But the UK, the you could say the grandparent of the United States, it's totally different. They don't actually even have a codified constitution. No, not at all. Like I said, it's kind of this idea that it's uh, parliamentary sovereignty. So anything the parliament says ultimately goes. I think there's also this kind of running idea within the American concept of Britain and that Somehow the monarchy actually matters. It really doesn't. Parliament is sovereign and Parliament is uh, voted on by the people. So it very much is a, a democratic country with the will of the people being voiced in Parliament. We get into kind of some of the weaknesses of that back in the representation episode. Uh, but nonetheless, the people are very much sovereign in the United Kingdom, even when they have a monarch. But we don't have a constitution. So it means we technically don't have codified rights. Uh, and it means that the parliament can make laws as it wishes to a certain extent. Uh, and then the extent to which it can't, the only thing that protects it is convention and precedent. So technically, parliament could ignore those, perhaps the national uproar, but if you have, say, the majority of the country willing to sacrifice precedent and convention, then you know you could end up making very illiberal laws through the system because there, there's ultimately no foundation as to what is right and what is wrong as you do in the states. Right. One of the central features of the United States Constitution is the Bill of Rights, which is a restriction on the United States government as to what they can and cannot do to their citizens and, and persons. Mm. So this is actually one of the things that I find to be a very 
good thing about constitutions. The fact that it gives you an opportunity to outline inalienable rights of citizens and of actual, you know, even non-citizens in some cases. Like in the like in the French Constitution, it starts off with the Universal De- Declaration of the Rights of Man, and it's not it's not limited to citizens of the French state. But for the United States Constitution, you know, you have the First Amendment right of free speech. You have the Second Amendment, which is you know hotly debated. You have the Fourth Amendment um, protection from unreasonable searches and seizures. You have the Sixth Amendment, which protects your uh, right to a uh, a trial, essentially. So you have these foundational pillars, I would call it, of of liberal democratic societies that are enshrined in these constitutions as as inalienable rights. Whereas you don't have that framework in the UK, it's more of a very complicated interrelation of all these rights that have been upheld as part of precedent and convention, like you said. So it's really up to, you know, Parliament can make these laws, but when you're judging the rights against each other, it's really up to your court system to set these sorts of precedents, which is something that I'm uncomfortable with uh, and, and why I would be uh, an advocate of constitutions to the extent that they do set up some sort of list of inalienable rights because we've seen things recently like in the UK, for instance, um, in Scotland in particular, where a comedian – was sentenced not to jail but uh it was house arrest i think and uh, a pretty hefty fine for telling a joke really which is something that you'd never see in the united states because of uh the constitutional protection of free speech uh, I, I don't know about that because even when it comes down to the bill of rights um one england and scotland both actually have their separate bill of rights that were laid down in 1689 so almost a full hundred years before, in fact, a full hundred years before the uh, American Constitution. Hmm. Uh, they don't go into the same depth as the, the American Bill of Rights. But um, even at that, you mentioned that, you know, it ultimately depends on our court system to decide what rights we have. That, well, that's exactly the same thing that happens in the States. Because, hmm. you know, take a look at the recent cake shop issues. Um, like the, the courts had to decide on who had the right in this situation. Does the gay couple requesting a cake have the right to get the cake? Or does a, a baker uh, have the religious right to deny them service? Um, ultimately, that will still come down to the courts. Um, and so I don't see there being necessarily any practical difference. And I think this is the major weakness of the American Constitution. And, and actually, to be honest, maybe any, maybe no constitution can actually accomplish this. But uh, every constitution let's say every constitution, has to be interpreted. And the only way you're mm. going to interpret it is in the courts. So no, the, even uh, when you've got this like lovely bill of rights laid out there, it's like, okay, so what does assembly mean? What does press mean? Uh, like, so I'll just give you an example from Spain. I was walking with an American here the first month I was here. Uh, this was before the independence referendum they had. And we were walking along one of the streets here in Barcelona and there was a protest that walked by it was unplanned, and what they were doing essentially was walking down one of the main streets in Barcelona, waving their flags and their posters. It was a big, fairly big group of students, maybe about you know, 250, 300 or so. And he pointed and said, uh, that would never happen in the States. You would have, immediately, you would have the cops come in and take them off the street, uh, whereas they allow it to happen here in Spain. Mm. And he was right. Like You saw similar protests like that, ones that would block traffic intentionally, ones that would walk down roads slowly. This is in Barcelona. This is in Barcelona. So... Why can they do that here, 
but they wouldn't be able to do it in the States because he's very right. The, the police would come in and you know, tell them to take a hike. You're creating public disorder. You are breaching the peace. Like, so even though there are, I, I don't believe there's a Spanish Bill of Rights uh, laid out in the mm-hmm. same way that there is in the American Constitution. Nonetheless, they had the right to do that here without police right. interference, whereas they didn't in the States, hypothetically, even though uh, the States has the right to free assembly. Right, right. That's that's definitely true. You have the right to freedom of assembly, but generally you need to get, you need to basically let them know that you're going to be doing it so that they can make proper security measures ah, and things like right. that. Well, but but what I'm saying is so that... So you need to let the state know that's that true, you're going to be assembly. But the state does not discriminate on the basis of your ideology or whatever. So it's not like you're looking for permission. You're just basically saying, this is where we're going to be and we're going to be protesting peacefully. And I think it's it's more of a protection against uh, rabble-rousing or, or riots, really, essentially. Sure, sure, sure. Um, like actual breaches of the peace. Right, right, exactly. You're definitely allowed for peaceful assembly, essentially. Oh, are you? Yes, exactly. And so... Um, well, I mean, relative to unpeaceful assembly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll get you'll get cleared out. I mean, look at the Charlottesville riots. They had to use they had a, a permit to use that public space, but then once it turned violent, that's when the police stepped in and started getting people out of there. Um, for instance, Westboro Baptist Church is allowed to picket funerals, which that might not be allowed in other nations uh, mm-hmm. within sight of the the procession itself. You have actually just recently. Uh, there was a permit granted for the alt right to have basically a neo Nazi rally in August in D.C. So there is a wide berth of protection for your right to freedom of assembly. Um, but when it, it, when it concerns public property, that's when it becomes an issue. If, if you wanted to have a, a rally or a protest on your own private property, there's nothing that's – there's nothing – unless it turns violent, there's nothing that the state can do to stop you from doing that. So if you wanted to camp out – next to the road on your own property with a bunch of people with signs protesting the government, you could do that. The only time that you need a permit is when it's on public property, just to ensure you know public peace and order. So, you know, you wouldn't see a an unplanned rally like you would in Barcelona, but you likely would have a larger latitude in the range of ideo- ideologies that you can, you can mm. rally under in public. Oh, okay. I'm not sure if that would be true because I could easily Well, I, see... I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure if that would be true, but I'm wondering if... Um, I, I'm wondering, essentially, what do you think? Do you think that there would be... So, so if there was a group like the alt-right, do you think that they would be allowed to gather in Barcelona or even in uh, like the UK, for instance? Well, yeah, definitely. There's the English Defence League and the Scottish Defence League that are both right-wing neo-fascist groups that are anti-immigrant hate groups effectively and yeah they're allowed to gather uh they often do create counter protests that end up being multiple times larger than their own protests uh but nonetheless they yeah of course of course they're allowed to gather here in spain yes i've certainly seen actually i've seen a couple um neo-fascist in fact there was one uh, just after the referendum, it was a big pro-Spanish march uh, organized by the far right. And uh, it was a very strange thing to see people waving Franco flags and um, pro, uh, pro-dictator uh, slogans. It was, yes, so again, they, they do have the freedom to do that here. They've got the freedom to do it in the UK, even without necessarily the protections of the Constitution. So why why then do you need a Constitution? 
when it comes to individual rights, I think it's important because, like you said, without a constitution, there's nothing that could stop a future par- parliament from deciding that you no longer have the right to do that, essentially. So, yes, up until now, the freedom of speech has been protected in the UK. I would say that you don't have as free speech as we do in the United States. I mean, you have seen people arrested over tweets and and jokes and things like that. That would never happen in the United States unless it was. There are some limitations put on free speech in the United States. Like, for instance, you can't incite violence. You can't do libel and slander. And and that's been, you, you know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, essentially. But you could tell a Holocaust joke like that comedian did in in Scotland and not be arrested and fined for it. So there, while you're correct in that you know, the institutions that you have in the UK have protected that right so, so far, there are stricter limitations on it than you have in a constitutional system, number one. And number two, there's nothing to stop the state from coming in saying, well, actually, that's very offensive to a vast majority of our people, so we're just going to make that illegal now Mm. you know but then you still have the problem i i I get what you're saying the the constitution certainly gives more of a backbone to the rights but you still have an interpretation problem as well and that Mm -hmm. you know you could weakly interpret uh, a certain right so as to effectively override it um so like for instance i could easily see hate speech laws come into effect in the states i don't think i think recent precedent has kind of undermined even my own argument there but you know, it's it's not impossible for. I don't think the introduction of hate speech laws in the states is necessarily counter to, uh, or impossible, given the way that particularly the Supreme Court gets to decide what is in the Constitution. Mm. Yeah, and that that maybe that's one of the the big issues I have. Maybe more of the American Constitution than others is that it's not so much that America, you know, has this constitution that is the backbone of its uh, its its state its rights whatever you want to call that it's that what is in the constitution is decided upon by the supreme court mm. so the supreme court gets to decide what the constitution is and what it says mm-hmm. which really doesn't make it any different than the uk because it's still the courts deciding what is true what is good what is a right what is yeah. illegal what is unconstitutional yeah the 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 Supreme Court in the United States, it sort of reminds me of our conversation that we had last time about the epistocratic veto. You have a group of highly educated, competent individuals. Obviously, these people are multiple, have multiple degrees and they're, they're either law professors or former judges and things like that. So they're highly qualified for their positions and they review the Constitution and they decide essentially – what it says. The problem that we see, though, that you're you're talking about, is ultimately it comes down to the court. And as we discussed, the court is very rarely impartial. I'm uncomfortable with the Supreme Court because while I do think it's valuable to have a separation of powers, I think that having a a branch of the government that is essentially is essentially undemocratic. It, it's not. It has no oversight. First of all, there's nothing that can overturn the Supreme Court other than uh, amending the Constitution. Basically, it's a lifetime appointment, and they're and they're essentially unaccountable, unelected judges that are then able to overrule 
the democratic rule of law, essentially, based on the tenets of the Constitution, based on their interpretation of the tenets of the Constitution. So it's not even necessarily what the what the original intent of the Constitution was or what might work best for the current society. It's the interpretation of the Constitution of that particular Supreme Court at that time. So you've seen plenty of things throughout the past where you, know, you had um, the Dred Scott case, which was the worst, probably the, the worst Supreme Court decision of all time, where essentially the court ruled that Dred Scott had to remain a slave of his owner and his, him and his wife could not seek freedom. You had Plessy v. Ferguson, which legalized segregation and said that you know there were separate but equal classes of you know American citizens, and these decisions have all been overturned. So you have the individual biases of the justices at the time interpreting the Constitution in that context, and you know violating human rights because of their interpretations of the Constitution at that time. So to view the, the, the court really as this impartial guardian of our democracy, I think, is a little naive. I think it's, it's far more political and biased than we'd like to think. So then is there a, a better – so between the extremes, I guess, of a rather inflexible, easily interpretable United States Constitution and a – well, a constitutionless state in the United Kingdom, is there a middle ground – what would you like to see? What would be your ideal state? First of all, I think constitutions are really important, right? I, th- I think they are important because you do need a a basis for your government. You need an agreed upon form format for for the government. And I think that you you know the advent of separation of powers is a great thing. It keeps the executive from becoming too powerful. It keeps the legislative become, from becoming tyrannical. And it, well, I mean, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of oversight of the judicial branch, but you do have the opportunity to amend the Constitution so that you can override what the court says. It's, it's, the judicial branch is the, the hardest branch of the government to override, essentially. And I think that that ought to change. I would be more comfortable with a system like you have in Ireland where the, where the Constitution is much easier to amend, and it's actually done mm. by, by a direct democracy, actually, through referendums. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a fairly regular process as well. It's happened quite often. In fact, there was one just this year that we covered on the podcast that uh, overturned the abortion law that was in Ireland at the time. That's uh, right. Ireland was one of the states that restricted abortion in almost all cases, and that was overturned via constitutional referendum. What I like about that is that not only is it left up to the people, but at the same time, you don't have – it's democratically decided. So it's not as if it's being imposed by a court. One of the things that you see throughout American history, especially especially with Roe v. Wade, where the court legalized abortion, the United States as a culture was not ready for that decision, and it has had – a very detrimental impact on the political discourse in this country ever since. Um, you have two distinct sides, which are either on the side of Roe v. Wade or on or think that was the most terrible decision ever and it should never have been made. And it happened at a time when that debate was still raging on, and the Supreme Court sort of stepped in and said, well, no, this is legal. Everybody who's against it, your voice is no longer going to be heard, basically. Mm-hmm. Whereas... 
with a constitutional referendum like you see in, in Ireland, it's democratically decided, which would be a lot easier to swallow for the people who are on the, the losing side of that debate, I guess. Whereas it, it, it's like, okay, well, this is, okay, this is a democratic step forward. This, the nation has legalized this as a people, and it hasn't been handed down to us by an unaccountable, unelected Supreme Court. And I think that the Supreme Court, more than anything, has the ability to cause this, this social unrest around its decisions. Um, whereas if though these things were allowed to develop democratically and debated in the open and legislated, I think that um, the peop- it, it would be less of a – I mean it's always, abortion is always going to be a very hot-button issue, but it's going to be debated probably more, more rationally. I would hope. Well, and and you know, as you say, providing a, a democratic decision from the people rather than from high above gives far more legitimacy to the the outcome. Um, I, certainly, though, like Ireland's recent referendum yielded almost a two to one differentiation between pro and anti-abortion. You know, I, I do wonder though if it would be as simple like so. Brexit, for instance, continues to be a difficult process because forty-eight percent of the country don't want to leave the EU. So I, I that's my only only suspicion on that. Otherwise, I like what you're I like what you're arguing. The the downside to the Irish case, though, is that you know an easily amendable constitution makes for a, a malleable foundation. So the one thing that I would have concern with in the Irish case is how much of the spine or the foundation of the country should be malleable. Um, so, for instance, if fifty percent plus of Ireland decided to make Catholicism the religion of the country. They they would be able to do that. In fact, if you look at the Turkish referendum from last year, it was a, a constitutional referendum that led to Erdogan now being able to cement his position as the country's dictator. It was through a constitutional referendum. So he was able to swing that democratically, perhaps questionably in Turkey's case, but nonetheless, mm. he has the legitimacy of the people's voice behind him. And he was able to change the constitution for his own benefit. So th- there are things in there. I, I don't know how, in fact, I do know how difficult it is to amend the U.S. constitution. Like, it takes a lot to amend that constitution. Perhaps there's a bit of inflexibility there, but I, I'm just concerned by these countries being able to manipulate and change their constitution as they see fit for the benefit of, uh, well, in Turkey's case, an autocrat. That's a good point. I think... In my ideal model, you would have something along the lines of a Bill of Rights that is more difficult to amend, for instance. Mm. So in the United States, you have a very difficult amendment process. The United States Constitution is meant to be amended very sparingly. Um, It's only been amended 27 times in 200-something-odd years. So... You know, you need two-thirds of Congress, both houses, to approve an amendment, and then it needs to be ratified by three-fourths of the state, which is a a very arduous process. I mean, even for simple amendments that are sort of no-brainers like ending slavery or allowing women to vote. Although they seem to both prohibit alcohol and then roll back the prohibition. That was quite an accomplishment. I don't know how the country swings that far that fast. I know, I know. Yeah, that's true, but you don't. That's that's a that's a one-off. I I don't think that there's a whole lot of analogs to that. But but still, even simple amendments are 
very, very difficult to actually put into place. So you could have a, a Bill of Rights that's more difficult to to change. You could have what I what I quite like actually is the idea of mandatory constitutional conventions written into the Constitution every twenty five years, for instance, uh, or you know twenty five, thirty, fifty years. I I mean I'm skeptical because you know a constitution a constitutional convention is one that literally comes together to review and update the constitution, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So could you imagine one happening this year? No. No, and what well, I don't mean in terms of like, it actually happening, but could you imagine the context in which a constitutional convention would be happening if it were to happen this year? Yeah, that's true. Like, could you imagine any agreement on any amendment to the constitution going through in this current political climate? No. Um, so there's there's... Actually, there's a very big positive for the states at the moment is that you can't actually change the constitution that easily. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably a good thing in the current climate. I quite like your idea of having certain portions of the constitution being more difficult to amend than others. Um, Germany, for instance, has a few, uh, what do they call it, eternal clauses. Um, one clause, I believe, uh, includes human rights, naturally. Another clause states that Germany will be forever a federation. So it always has to have states. It can never be a unitary country. Um, and again, that's for kind of historical reasons. So the, there are these eternal clauses that can't be changed unless the entire constitution was to be done away with uh, and replaced by something else. I would be a fan of that. What eternal clauses would you include in a, a US constitution that was to be reformed? And what would you allow to be reformed? Well, number one, I would probably keep it uh, as a federation. I think that's a smart idea. I think that in general, the federal system works fairly well, especially when we were talking about representation, where I think the best way to provide good representation of the people is to, vo to devolve the government as small as it possibly can be for the smallest possible constituencies. So I would keep the federation, but I would make changes to the way in which representation works. I think that we are far too underrepresented. So 535 representatives no longer makes sense. You don't technically have to amend the Constitution to, uh, to allow for more representatives. I think that's really important. We need more representatives. But I would still amend the Constitution because right now, um, right now there's a law that was passed in 1911 which limits the number of representatives in the House to 435. Constitutionally, senators are limited to 50. You can only have two per state so that all the states are equally represented. But for the Constitution really only says that you can't have more than one representative per 30,000 people, which is really, that's a lot. Uh, you could have potentially a lot of representatives then because that's a really small number. But I would amend the Constitution to require a certain amount of representatives per a certain amount of people. So maybe say you need one representative per 100,000 for instance, um, so, so that you had a more representative sample from the states. I think a lot of the flaws of the United States Constitution come from the fact that the founders didn't envision a representative or specifically a direct democracy. They envisioned a republic. Um, and so there are some institutions in it that are, are undemocratic, like I said, with the Supreme Court. And so some of the changes that I would want to make are 
you know, enshrining certain rights that are much more difficult to amend, but then leaving some of the institutional powers up to up to amendment or revision. Um, you know, maybe even in a in a system like France. France has had multiple iterations of its constitution. That doesn't seem to have. I I don't think negatively affected the way that the French government has been able to operate. I think they redid their constitution in 1958. Yeah, and in actual fact, it was uh, an improvement, uh, a significant improvement between the Fourth Republic and the Fifth Republic, uh, because the Fourth Republic ended up being actually in a almost a. Um, kind of a parallel to the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution in the States. It was just the Fourth Republic just didn't work well. It just, the, the cogs of the system just kept clogging each other up. The Fifth Republic uh, kind of put that right. Another good example of uh, a country that, you know, brings about good institutional change through its uh, constitutional amendments is Belgium. Um, they started out as a unitary country in 1830. So it was like Ireland or like the UK before devolution started happening. There was just a central government in Brussels that uh, ruled the entire country. But Belgium is made up of three different uh, cultural groups, um, the French speakers, the Dutch speakers, and then there's a tiny little German-speaking minority. And what they did over a period of, was it 40 years now, since 1970, almost 50 years They've been reforming their constitution in a series of state reforms so that now Belgium, once being a unitary state, is now a proper federal state. In fact, it's probably the most decentralized federation in the world. Like There are significant uh, political rights for uh, the, the cultural communities, so much so, actually, that the regions of Belgium can hold up international treaties. So Belgium can't make an international treaty if one of the things being treated is a competency that has been devolved into one of the communities, then the community needs to approve it. So the European Union was trying to build a, a trade agreement with Canada. It's called CETA. And it was held up for a while because one of the Belgian regions refused to sign on to it. So hmm. Belgium couldn't then sign on to it. So you've got this tiny little region in Europe kind of holding up a massive trade agreement between uh, the, the EU and Canada. Um, point being, though, is that uh, Belgium had a problem in the 1950s in which there was complete political deadlock between the two communities, and it was only through a series of state reforms that they were able to overcome their differences by effectively devolving as much power as they possibly could to the communities so that they would actually stick together. Uh, so Belgium still exists because the constitution was easily reformable and because they found a way to actually amend the institutions of the state and in such a way that completely revolutionized the state as well. Right, and so it can be done without forfeiting the liberal democracy that it was. Of course, yeah, of course, of course. Like in terms of your political rights as a Belgian citizen, they haven't changed. But the way that you interact with the state and the way that the state... Uh, kind of maintains and controls, uh, well, how it divvies up the power uh, is completely different. And actually, in a sense, you know, relative to what you've been arguing recently with the states and increasing state autonomy, the, the daily political life of the Belgian is now more influenced by the regional government than the federal government. Mm. And that's happening more and more so. So like, that's, that's my, that would be my ultimate goal. Mm. Uh, and like I said, we sort of have this inverted emphasis we emphasize the elections more that have less of an effect on us 
mm-hmm. right? Or or should have less of an effect on us, essentially. You know, we're all hot and bothered about the presidential election when we should be worried about what our local constituencies are doing and what's going to affect us in our day-to-day lives and our children going to school and stuff like that. But, you know, there's much less involvement in in um, local government. And I think that's because of the inherent lack of substantial power that's granted to the, the states. I mean, over time, because there's not... I, I mean, I guess this also comes down to the failures of... This also comes down to an issue of interpretation because the United States Constitution is a federal system, which essentially did give quite a bit of power to the states. But over time, that's been sort of reversed over precedent and and the federal government sort of seizing power from from the states. Technically, it was the states giving power to the federal government, and that has just been a one way street ever since its creation. Right, right, exactly. And I would say that and this is why I wouldn't be opposed to something like. Not scrapping the entire thing, but doing a serious constitutional reform. Unfortunately, the problem with that is that United States politics is so fractured, you'd need to put in so many different changes before that could actually happen. But those changes would take constitutional change. So you would need, you would need more of a proportional representation system. You'd need more than the two-party system. You would need um, what we've talked about already. You'd need a high level of voter participation, a high level of voter education so that people would you know, be able to vote on these issues in, in an informed way before you could ever get to the point where we had a government that would be able to undertake a constitutional reform. Because right now, you would have two sides that wouldn't agree on anything. I think, you know, by way of concluding the episode, that one of the issues I have when I reflect on constitutions is that when I observe the, a constitution itself, the structure is neutral. So whether there's a constitution or not, the way that it divides up the powers, the way that, you know, whether there is a Bill of Rights or not, all of this is neutral because, in a sense, there are good countries that I would be happy living in that don't have Bill of Rights or constitutions like the United Kingdom. There are countries that I'm perfectly happy living in that do have constitutions like Belgium, like Spain, to a certain extent. There are certainly countries that... Uh, you know, even have the middle ground like Canada that, you know, still operate perfectly well. So I'm not convinced necessarily that having a constitution or a certain type of constitution is a good or a bad thing. Rather, it's kind of what the people and what the rulers of those countries do with the constitution. Uh, So those, uh, so again, I just think of Turkey and what Erdogan has recently done by amending the constitution, he has de facto become the dictator of Turkey. Whereas if something like that were to happen in the UK, that just wouldn't be stood for. Uh, the people wouldn't put up with it. Uh, so I think it comes down to not what the constitution is, not necessarily what the structure is, but what the political culture of a country is, uh, what the political culture of a state is. And if the people are willing to fight for the rights and the rights of their fellow countrymen, it doesn't matter what the constitution is. It doesn't matter what the structure is. If people, though, are willing to take advantage of their fellow citizens, are willing to step on their fellow citizens for their own gain, then again, it still doesn't matter what the constitution is. It's going to happen. And that's all we've got time for for this episode. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Absurdistanis. We're also on YouTube as Absurdistan with an exclamation point. Be sure to check out our website, absurdistanis.com. That's absurdistanis.com. 
We post all episodes to this website and we also host forums for discussion so that you, our audience, can engage with our content. Thank you for listening to the summer series. Part four coming up is about media and how media influences the way that we think about our politics, uh, well, whether it's for the good or for the bad. So, as always, stay informed. Stay informed.